Well, hello, class, and welcome to another episode of the TM288 Historical Theology 2 podcast. We are moving today into our Unit 7, in which we are going to discuss the last doctrine of the Course, uh, that is the doctrine of Scripture or the doctrine of Revelation. I'm going to pay particular attention to three uh, predominant theological perspectives during the 1900s. Uh, most of these were prevalent in Europe and North America among Protestants, um, though there are parallels found in much of the Catholic Church. The first group we'll be looking at comes up in PowerPoint 7.1, and that's a group known as fundamentalists. Now today, the term fundamentalist tends to have a pretty negative connotation to it. It's not usually viewed as a compliment in many circles often being associated with things like radical terrorism or repressive views of, of women or antisocial tendencies. However, originally the term derives from a group of texts published in the 1910s that were named the Fundamentals. Uh, these English-language texts, predominantly drawn from North American authors, sought to define certain fundamental tenets of the faith uh, that these individuals believed were being challenged by modern theological perspectives and modern culture. We've actually covered a number of individuals who would probably be classified as fundamentalist today, though the term only emerged after these books in the 1910s. Uh, in fact, the predecessors for this movement are far older than this. So, for example, B.B. Warfield, who you read as a Protestant representative of cessationism uh, from the old Princeton School of Reformed Theology, would likely be classified as a fundamentalist in most circles. J. Gresham Machen would certainly fit this category as well. And he's writing during the time of the peak of the debate between fundamentalism and another perspective that we'll be looking at, which is that of Protestant liberalism. There's a lot that can be debated from these various views, and Machen's book covers everything from the doctrine of salvation to the doctrine of scripture. But for this unit, I want to focus primarily on the doctrine of scripture and revelation. Unlike our last unit, where there was such a wide divergence of opinions that it was hard to provide you with an overview sheet mapping the main points of conflict. In this unit, I do once again have such a key dispute document for you. So you may want to keep that in front of you along with the PowerPoints during the next three lectures. So, a little bit more about the context of this debate, beginning on slide four in PowerPoint 7.1. During the time of the Reformation, the common view was that the word was a means of grace that the Spirit would use to convert, regenerate, and sanctify the believer. Despite this fact, it's the case that many Reformation-era theologians spent a relatively minimal amount of time describing the doctrine of Scripture in comparison with their emphasis on areas that were more debated, such as the doctrine of church and the doctrine of justification. Even in their defense of the principle of sola scriptura, which held scripture to be the top authority in comparison with tradition and reason and experience, Reformation-era theologians often did not write as extensively on how it is that scripture was inspired and therefore viewed as the top authority. 
This relative imbalance in Reformation-era theology created a vacuum into which these debates emerged several centuries later. What specifically prompted these debates? Arguably, uh, there are several historical factors. I'm going to name two as particularly important. The first is the emergence of rationalism. We skipped this unit as a result of losing some classes during our transition online. However, following the wars of religion, there was a concerted effort in Europe for individuals to attempt to prove the truthfulness of religious beliefs on the basis of reason, which theoretically all individuals could come to agreement upon in a manner that would prevent conflict over religion. René Descartes is a prime example of this, whose effort was to begin from a position of suspicion, doubting all things that could not be proven by pure reason. Descartes believed that he had established a proof for his own existence, for the reliability of his thought, for the existence of God, and for a number of other truths. Approaches like this led Christian theologians to attempt to use reason to establish the truths of religion, and we see this to an extent in writers like Machen. What's interesting, though, is it turns out it's actually quite difficult to conclusively prove any of the Christian beliefs from reason. There is certainly evidence in their favor, but in my opinion, a degree of faith is required in virtually all matters. This relates to the distinction that we discussed earlier in relation to the Holy Spirit between special revelation and general revelation. As Warfield would have it, for example, general revelation pertains to revelation that we can more or less obtain through the use of reason. That revelation is in nature, thanks to the work of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit need not inspire our thinking in a particular way for us to understand those truths. However, Warfield argued that by and large, the major truths of the Christian religion were more properly classified as special revelation, such truths as the atonement, the hypostatic union, the doctrine of the Trinity, the second coming of Christ, these sort of doctrines depend upon God not only revealing supernatural truths, but supernaturally opening our minds so that we might understand them. Given this, the difficulty of establishing complete proof of many Christian doctrines, we see a growing emergence of biblical criticism, often called historical criticism. Because we cannot uh, indisputably establish many biblical truths, a number of alternative theories emerged attempting to make sense of the data. Among these are included things like the quest for the historical Jesus that Machen mentioned several times in your readings. This approach attempted to establish what could be historically proven about Christ from a position of general skepticism toward the New Testament itself. So in this context, we have a theology of inspiration that has perhaps not been developed sufficiently. For example, Calvin, in his substantive uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, argues directly for the authority of Scripture, but only in about three pages. William Ames, famous Puritan theology textbook writer, has one sentence on inspiration, and one sentence where he says the Spirit prevents humans from erring. There's not very much there. Theologians fill the gap, and they do so in a context where things are contested. So, what specific ideas do the Protestant fundamentalists adopt? 
First, I'd like to talk a little bit about the inspiration of the Bible. And I'm following a pattern here from a theologian named A.A. A. Hodge, who taught at Princeton and wrote prior to the writing of the Fundamentals. So A.A. A. Hodge was writing uh, in the uh, 1800s, middle of the 1800s. But his general ideas carried on through a number of other theologians and broadly shaped the position of those who would come to be called fundamentalists. Hodge argues that there are four divine acts that make inspiration possible. That fourth act is inspiration itself, which refers to God's work in the writers of the Bible. Let's walk through these four steps. Step one is providence. Providence is the idea that God providentially leads every author to exist in the place and time and manner that God desires, in order so that that author might be equipped to write. For example, God providentially determined that John would become a disciple of Christ. He determined the sorts of conversations that John would have with Christ, and he made it possible for John to write the gospel, or else to use an amanuensis who would write on his behalf. God's providence provides an occasion for an individual to experience the revelation of God. The second component here is that of illumination. So we're returning here to the work of the Holy Spirit like our last unit. The Spirit not only sanctifies us, but also illuminates us. For the Reformed, like Hodge, this is the primary ongoing work of the Spirit. There is sanctification, but the supernatural and charismatic gifts are set aside, and frankly, sanctification can be de-emphasized. But illumination still occurs for all Christians. All Christians receive the Spirit in a manner that gives us knowledge about God. We see Christ talking about this in John chapters 14 through 16, for example. When another advocate or another paraclete, the Spirit, comes, that Spirit will remind us of the words that Jesus has said and will convict us of our sins. Well, this illuminating work of the Spirit allows us to have a spiritual experience of God. But Reformed theologians, and for that matter, most theologians in general, would recognize that our experiences of God might not be accurate. Paul himself warns us in a letter to the Thessalonians that we ought to test the spirits. So mere illumination alone would not guarantee that we can trust the Bible in the face of these challenges from rationalism and historical criticism. So a third step is needed, and that is a step of revelation. According to this step, Hodge says God conveys truths directly to the authors by various methods. Sometimes a vision occurs. We see this in various prophets or in the book of Daniel. Sometimes uh, revelation occurs through direct encounter with Jesus Christ. Sometimes a voice is heard by a prophet where God says, write this down. But more often than not, revelation involves God subtly guiding an author to knowledge of the truth about God in ways that might not be as dramatic as a vision or a theophany like the burning bush. Now, many folks can receive revelation who, in fact, never write anything down in a book. Consider the prophet Nathan, for example, a prophet who is inspired by God 
and ministered toward King David, and yet there is no book of Nathan in the Old Testament. So a fourth and final step is needed to move us from the revelation that the biblical authors had to the text that we possess, and that is the step of inspiration. God guides individuals to the right circumstances, illuminates them with a spiritual experience of God, gives them revelation within that experience where they are able to turn that experience into truth content, propositions, and then through inspiration, the Spirit ensures that the authors record these acts of revelation and illumination accurately. So with the, without these four steps, we do not have a trustworthy text of the Bible. So that's the doctrine of inspiration from a fundamentalist perspective. A few other things should be noted here, and I have this on slide six as clarifications. First of all, when we're referring to providence, it should be noted that due to concurrence, and recall from our predestination unit, concurrence refers to human and divine agency overlapping. Due to concurrence, biblical texts maintain their human traits. So we can see uh, unique writing styles in Luke in comparison even with Mark, a book that is quite similar in much of its content. We can see certain cultural uh, tropes and themes found in Old Testament books that are no longer found in New Testament books because culture has changed. The fact that God is providentially guiding these authors to write the Bible means that he is working through history, and so the writing itself is historically situated. When we talk about illumination, again, we need to clarify that all Christians receive this in varying degrees. But arguably, the authors of the Bible have a higher degree of illumination than you or I do. Even Revelation, as I mentioned, some receive this and do not write it down. But inspiration is only reserved for biblical authors. There is no degree of inspiration. Either one is inspired or one is not. So I, on a reform perspective because of the view of cessationism that the supernatural works of the Spirit have ceased, I could never appropriately claim to say that I am inspired. Inspiration, just like speaking in tongues, was a gift that died out with the apostles. This raises some interesting questions from a Pentecostal perspective, where other, where other charismatic gifts continue. Does the gift of inspiration continue? Often, at least implicitly, the answer seems to be yes for revelation. The gift of prophecy is often cited. But can these prophecies be written down in an inspired manner? Frequently, uh, to my knowledge, Pentecostal groups have avoided this tendency, though there are some exceptions in groups like the African indigenous churches that we've talked about in our Global Christianity Unit. So how do we summarize this fundamentalist perspective in terms of a few key debates? And I'm going to focus on three key debates for each of the perspectives we look at. The first debate is the question of what is the Bible, or as other groups might put it, what is the Word of God? And as we'll see, some groups say that these things are not quite identical. The second dispute concerns how God relates to the Bible. And the third dispute concerns how accurate the Bible is in historical terms. So how do fundamentalists answer this first question? 
As you see on your slide, fundamentalists would argue that the Bible is the Word of God in form and in substance expressed in human language. So what is meant by this phrase? Well, first let's break down form and substance. When fundamentalists speak of the Bible being the Word of God in form and substance, what they mean is that it is not only the ideas that are the Word of God, but the means of expressing those ideas. Yet, having said that, as I already mentioned, they do not mean that the form just descends purely from heaven. It is always historically situated. Hodge, for example, argues that there are three possible ways God could have written the Bible. He could have directly written it, as when God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger, according to the book of Exodus. He could have done so by verbal dictation, where he said, write down these words, which we know uh, is recorded as a pattern several times in the Bible. However, Hodge says primarily God has chosen to do this through human agency. Uh, here he appeals to a Christological analogy. So here's a quote from him. As Christ was true man, tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, because also divine, so the Bible is thoroughly human, yet without error, because also divine. Inspiration is not thought to be by verbal dictation, but by the concurrent operation of human and divine actions. So 2 Peter 1, 20-21 is often cited here. No prophet speaks apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is the word of God in form and substance, and yet expressed in human language. How is it that God relates to the Bible? Here, the fundamentalist appeals to a technical term that you will need to know for the exam, and that is verbal plenary inspiration. Let me break these, this term down into its parts. It is inspiration because the Spirit has guided the actual writing of the biblical text. It is plenary, uh, which is the term that means extending to all, um, because it is absolute. Every aspect of the Bible is inspired by God. And it is verbal because the very words themselves are thought to be chosen by God. In other words, it's not merely that Matthew has the right ideas about who Jesus was and what happened in his life, but the very words that Matthew has chosen to describe this understanding of Christ are themselves accurate. Here, appeal is often made to 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is theopnoestos. Now, modern translations tend to use God breathed for this word. Uh, and so the emphasis there is on the words actually coming from God himself. Older traditions in the English language tend to use language of God inspired here. But notice that it is all scripture that is God breathed or God inspired. This suggests that every aspect of it is down to the individual words themselves. Okay, third question. How accurate is the Bible in terms of the information it is trying to convey. Here, fundamentalists emphasize the doctrine of inerrancy. Now, the general idea that the Bible is trustworthy is found across cultures and generations, but this particular phrasing of the dispute uh, is more prevalent in English language circles uh, or in circles influenced by North American fundamentalism and evangelicalism. Inerrancy is the idea that the Bible is completely without error in its original autographs. 
So what do I mean by the autographs here? Well, an autograph would refer to the original text that was written by the authors themselves. But as we've seen, for example, with Erasmus and the Textus Receptus in the Reformation era, there have been changes in the textual tradition from, say, the Greek text to the Latin text. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, was modified into Latin to do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A Protestant fundamentalist would obviously deny that the Latin text was without error. An error had been made either in the translation uh, or in the copying of texts. However, the belief of inerrancy says, were we to go back to the original text, we would find no error whatsoever in any of the words or ideas of the historical documents. Now, is this a consequential question, we might ask? James M. Gray, the Dean of Moody Bible Institute, in the text, The Fundamentals, answers at this point. Some years ago, a so-called liberal theologian, depreciating this discussion is not worthwhile, remarked that it was a matter of small consequence whether a pair of trousers were originally perfect if they were now torn. To which the valiant and witty James, excuse me, David James Burrell replied that it might be a matter of small consequence to the wearer of the trousers, but to the tailor who made them, he would prefer to have it understood that they did not leave his shop this way. In other words, what's at stake with the doctrine of inerrancy for early fundamentalists is as much or more the perfection of God than it is the accuracy of current theological knowledge. Now, don't make a mistake here. Fundamentalists were quick to make apologetic arguments that the versions of the biblical texts that we have today are quite similar to the versions of the biblical texts that were the autographs. So similar, in fact, that they can be trustworthy in all key matters of doctrine and in all of their historical details, though occasional smaller conflicts may arise. However, the main point behind the doctrine of inerrancy seems to be preserving the fact that God was able to perfectly communicate the message that he intended and that that message was perfectly delivered to the church. The doctrine of God, therefore, is closely linked to the doctrine of inerrancy. And the doctrine of inerrancy was thought to be a response to those challenges posed by historical criticism and posed by rationalist thinking. Sure, fundamentalists could provide a defense of the accuracy of the Bible, but they could likely never get to a point where they could completely prove that it was without error, though individuals certainly did try. However, if fundamentalists pointed out the perfect nature of God, then they had a strong faith-based reason to affirm the perfection of scriptures against those larger challenges of Protestant liberalism and of historical critical scholarship. We will turn to these larger challenges at a later time. But for now, our time is up. And so I hope you have a good rest of your week and look forward to seeing some of you in this week's Zoom on Friday.